Chapter 20 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Sable Island. Of a letter from Honorable Hugh Bell to Miss Dix, dated Halifax, August 4, 1853, the following words may be recalled by the reader. Quote, I called on the Admiral or rather at the Admiralty House, to leave my card for the Earl of Ellesmere, as in duty bound. The old Admiral met me at the door very cordially, shook hands, and then said, Where is Miss Dix? I replied, She left for home yesterday. She has been to Sable Island and back. He exclaimed in true sailor style, She's a gallant woman. End quote. How gallant a woman the sequel to this visit was to prove her, not even the hardy old admiral dreamed. It so happened that while Miss Dix, in June 1853, was engaged in asylum work at St. John, Newfoundland, there occurred a fearful storm, attended by appalling shipwrecks, which left a lasting impression on her mind. She had gone through some perilous experiences of her own on these exposed coasts, but from a letter to her friend, Miss Heath, describing the fury of the elements on this especial night, it was evident that her whole nature had now been wrought to the pitch of a fixed resolution to devise some efficient practical means for the rescue of those at the mercy of such terrible gales. Hence her visit to Sable Island, so fitly named the Graveyard of Ships. The familiar maxim, it is an ill wind that blows nobody any good, was now destined to receive a fresh commentary. Sable Island, jutting far out into the western Atlantic, lies in latitude 43 degrees 56 minutes north, longitude 60 degrees, three minutes west, some 30 miles southward from the easterly end of Nova Scotia. It is a waste of desolate, windswept sand hills, fringed with everlasting surf, harborless and shelterless on every side. Quote, the whole region for leagues around is a trap and a snare. One sunken bar stretches sixteen miles away to the northeast, another twenty-eight miles to the northwest. The embrace of these long arms is death, for between them lie alternate deep and shoals, and when the sea is angry it thunders and reverberates along a front of thirty miles, extending twenty-eight miles to seaward. No lighthouse throws its warning gleam beyond this seething death line, for stone structures will not stand upon these ever-shifting sands, and wooden ones of sufficient height could not withstand the storms. The mariner drifts to his grave through total gloom. The whole island bristles with stark timbers and the debris of wrecks. Thus, like the monster polypus of ancient story, 
It lieth in the very track of commerce, stretching out its huge tentacles for its prey, enveloped in fogs and mist, and scarcely distinguishable from the gray surf that unceasingly lashes its shores. End quote. Official records set the number of known wrecks on the island, occurring between 1830 and 1848, at 16 full-rigged ships, 14 brigs, and 13 schooners. Besides these, the loss of large numbers of unknown vessels, engulfed and never surviving to tell their fatal story by more than a floating spar, would have vastly farther swollen the tragic list. The first authentic mention of Sable Island dates from the surviving companions of the ill-fated Sir Humphrey Gilbert, the gallant and devout courtier of Queen Elizabeth, who added so heroic a name to the proud list of England's worthies. The occasion of his search for the island, with his little fleet of three vessels, is thus described in Hakloit's Voyages. Quote, Sabla lieth to the seaward of Cape Britain, about forty-five leagues, whither we were determined to go upon intelligence we had of a Portugal, during our abode in St. John's, who was himself present when the Portingals, about thirty years past, did put into the same island both meat and swine to breed, which were since exceedingly multiplied. The distance between Cape Race and Cape Britain is one hundred leagues in which navigation we spent eight days, having the wind many times indifferent good, but could never attain sight of any land all that time, seeing we were hindered by the current. At last we fell into such flats and dangers that hardly any of us escaped, where nevertheless we lost the ship Admiral, with all the men and provision, not knowing certainly the place. Contrary to the mind of the expert Master Cox, on Wednesday the 27th August, they bore up towards the land, those in the doomed ship, the Admiral, continually sounding trumpets and drums, whilst strange voices from the deep scared the helmsman from his post on board the frigate. Thursday the 28th, the wind arose and blew vehemently from the south and east, bringing withal rain and thick mist, that we could not see a cable length before us. And betimes in the morning, we were altogether run and folded in amongst flats and sands, amongst which we found flats and deeps every three or four ships' length. Immediately tokens were given to the admiral to cast about to seaward, which, being the greater ship and of burden one hundred and twenty tons, was performost upon the beach, keeping so ill watch that they knew not the danger before they felt the same too late to recover it. For presently the admiral struck aground, and had soon after her stern and hinder parts beaten in pieces. Thus beginning the record, it has ever since maintained, 
Such was the disastrous reception given by Sable Island, August 28, 1583, to Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who with great difficulty escaped with his two remaining vessels, only soon after himself to founder in the terrible gale off the Grand Banks, in which, standing at the helm, sorely wounded in one foot and Bible in hand, he cheerily shouted to his companions on the sole surviving vessel, We are as near to heaven by sea as by land. Later on, in 1598, Sable Island was made a penal colony for convicts from the French settlements in Arcadia, forty of them having been landed there by the Marquis de la Roche and left to their fate. It was found seven years later that only twelve had survived to tell the story of their sufferings. Later, as increasing commerce added to the tale of wrecks, the island became the abode of desperate men, who as piratical wreckers gave it such a name that it was reputed better for mariners to be swallowed up by the sea than to escape only to be murdered on land. Finally, in 1802, after the wreck of the British transport Princess Amelia, having on board the furniture of Prince Edward, with recruits, officers, and servants to the number of 200, all of whom perished, though it is supposed that some reached shore and were murdered by the pirates, the provincial legislature took action. A relief station was established, the wreckers were driven off the island, and a superintendent with a crew of four men placed in charge. From step to step, these humane provisions were increased, until in 1836 the annual fund was raised to 2,000 pounds, stanch buildings were erected, and new apparatus added. Such, then, is the ill-omened, though gradually ameliorating, history of Sable Island in the past. It is certainly a striking commentary on the change that has come over the world on the subject of woman's sphere and woman's appropriate work, since the days when Iago summed them up in such unflattering terms that now an overtaxed and suffering representative of the sex should see it in the light of imperative duty to make a voyage to this so dreaded island to study on the spot whether something more effective could not be devised for the safety of those exposed to such frightful perils. Why her imperative duty? Were there not the home government and the provincial government? Were there not admirals and captains in plenty? Were there not the rich shipping merchants of Halifax, Liverpool, New York, and Boston, whose argosies lay stranded at every point of those storm-lashed shores? And she herself, surely with hospitals to look after in twenty states, 12,225,000 acre bills to engineer through Congress, and two new asylums actually in hand in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, might she not guiltlessly have washed her hands of Sable Island? No, 
thither must she go, to study the problem on the spot, to examine into every detail of the life-saving apparatus used, and to leave behind her, as she scoured every part of the island on one of the ragged little wild ponies that breed there, the character of an intrepid horseman. Making Sable Island, landing there for a stay of several days, and then getting away again, is an undertaking always involving a certain amount of risk. There is no harbor, and even on the north, the more sheltered shore, vessels have to lie off at a considerable distance, ready at the first sign of an unfavorable change of wind to put out to sea. Fortunately for the purposes Miss Dix had in view, her visit occurred at a time especially good for her, though ill-omened for others. It so chanced that a wreck actually occurred during the two days of her stay on the island, that of a fine new vessel, the Guide, with a cargo for Labrador. She went ashore on the south side, no storm, but a dense fog prevailing, in which she became bewildered till she found herself within the fatal arms of the sand polypus. As the weather remained calm, all lives were saved by the surfboats. The wreck, however, enabled Miss Dix to secure a vivid object lesson of what could and what could not be done by the force of men and character of apparatus on hand. Oddly enough, moreover, an incident occurred which united, in a kind of dramatic unity, a romantic blending of her old mission in behalf of the insane with her new in behalf of the sailor. It is thus described in a letter from Mr. E. Merriam of New York, who later on rendered invaluable service to her scheme for equipping the island with proper lifeboats and appliances. Quote, the ship was abandoned by all but the captain. He had become a raving maniac and would not leave. Miss Dix rode to the beach on horseback as the last boat landed from the ill-fated ship and learned the sad fate of the commander, who, the sailor said, was a kind-hearted man. She pled with them to return to the wreck and bring him on shore, and to bind him if it was necessary for his safety. They obeyed her summons, and soon were again on the beach, with their captain bound hand and foot. She loosened the cords, took him by the arm, and led him to a boathouse built for the shipwrecked, and there, by kind words, calmed his mind and persuaded him to thank the sailors for saving his life. She trusted that rest and nourishing food would restore him to his reason. Scarcely back in the United States, Miss Dix set to work with her usual energy. She had found the boats and the life-saving apparatus at Sable Island far behind the requirements of the day. There was no mortar for throwing a line across a wrecked vessel, no provision of cars and breeches buoys. Above all, the boats were clumsy and unsafe. 
utterly incapable of the perilous services demanded of them. Applying at once to her friends among the merchants of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, she was quickly provided with funds for building boats of the most approved modern construction and ordering a full equipment of the newest inventions and apparatus. August 20th, 1853, on reaching Boston, Miss Dix at once sought communication with such experts in nautical matters as Captain Robert B. Forbes, then chairman of the Humane Society of Boston, who quickly responded to her appeal. Captain Forbes was a notable instance of that noble breed of American sailors and merchants who at one period carried the fame of their country for courage, enterprise, and sagacity all round the globe. Full of public spirit, he had on a previous occasion taken command of the Jamestown when she was sent out laden with corn for the relief of famine-stricken Ireland as equally he had founded the Sailor's Snug Harbor for disabled seamen in Quincy, Massachusetts. Nothing bearing on the questions either of building stanch ships or caring for the welfare of their crews or lighting exposed points for their guidance or saving their lives when the hour of disaster struck failed to appeal to his intelligence and humanity. The letter Miss Dix addressed to Captain Forbes, immediately after arriving in Boston, bears the mark of a certain breathless haste, as though no time were to be lost. Quote, Boston, August 20th, 1853. Miss Dix's compliments to Mr. Forbes and wishes to consult him on several questions relative to marine interests wherein his superior judgment and assistance can assist her own aims. Will Mr. Forbes oblige Miss Dix by calling at the residence of Charles Haywood Esquire, number 9 Franklin Place, at the earliest hour his convenience will allow, on Wednesday morning, August 21st? It is not surprising, accordingly, to find in Captain Forbes' journal as early as September 16th, an entry to the effect, quote, Trying experiments with life preservers and boat. I went into the river with a neighbor to show Miss Dix how to capsize and how to right a boat. We invited her to throw herself over and permit us to save her, but as she had no change of clothes, she declined, end quote. By the middle of November, matters had gone at such a pace that after personally superintending the building of the Victoria in Boston, Captain Forbes was able to write as follows of this boat and of the others that had been constructed in New York, quote, Miss D. L. Dix, my dear lady, your several notes are received. The last bears date Buffalo 12th, in stand mense, and, as far as I can make out, you do write a hard hand for a businesswoman, asks for an answer to New Jersey and Trenton. Footnote. Miss Dix's handwriting was at once the amusement and the despair of her correspondence, 
who were often driven to their wits' ends in vain attempts to decipher it. The trouble began back in her schoolkeeping days when overstrain added writer's cramp to her numerous disabilities. Things grew worse in this respect when so vast a correspondence was thrust upon her by her asylum work. Indeed, her biography could hardly have been written without an amount of serious preliminary study of her manuscripts, fairly equal to that of Champollion in his preparation for deciphering the hieroglyphics of Egypt. End footnote. Here it is. The boat is in Boston, and being fitted with her floats, some of which being smaller than ordered, I am putting in copper airtight cases. All will, I trust, be ready for shipment in four or five days. Do not, I beg of you, say anything about obligation to me. It is me and the rest of us merchants whom you have laid under obligations. I made a long journey to Williamsburg, where your New York boats are lying in the shop of Francis. They are good boats, though rather heavy, and I predict that the Victoria will be queen of the fleet. I am very truly yours, R. B. Forbes. By the 25th of November, the boats and outfits were completed, the three boats built in New York being publicly exhibited on Wall Street and attracting great attention by their beauty and strength. It was Miss Dix's desire to forward the entire little fleet by a sailing vessel to Halifax, thence, as opportunity offered, to be transferred to Sable Island. To this plan, Captain Forbes strongly objected, as putting too many eggs in one basket, and insisting on sending the Boston boat, the Victoria, to Halifax by a Cunard steamer. She was accordingly thus forwarded, accompanied by the following letter from Miss Dix. Quote, New York, November 28, 1853. To His Excellency Sir John Gaspard Le Marchant, Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia, etc., K.C.B., etc. I have the honor and pleasure of consigning by this writing to Your Excellency a lifeboat, the Victoria of Boston, for the use of Sable Island, and which with its appendages is a gift to me for this sole purpose from Honorable Abbott Lawrence, Honorable Jonathan Phillips, Colonel T. H. Perkins, Honorable William Appleton, R. C. Harper, R. B. Forbes, and G. N. Upton, Esquire, all of Boston. To Mr. Forbes, who for courage and knowledge in nautical affairs has a wide reputation, I am especially obliged since his judgment and experience have assisted me in effecting the completion of my wishes in this business in a satisfactory manner. I have the honor to be Your Excellency's sincere friend, with sentiments of respect and esteem, D. L. Dix. P.S. The Boston boat will very soon be followed by the New York and Philadelphia boats with the outfits." The brig Eleonora, 
destined to carry the New York boats, sailed November 27th. On her were shipped by Miss Dix two surf boats, one lifeboat, two boat wagons, one life car, the mortar, with fit ammunition, coils of manila rope, etc. The following letter accompanied them, a letter that shows the varied nature of the interests in behalf of Sable Island with which Miss Dix's mind was filled. Quote, New York, November 29, 1889. His Excellency Sir George Seymour, K.C.B., etc. When I was in Nova Scotia last summer, an opportunity occurred of visiting Sable Island. I found it deficient in libraries, opening a source of amusement and instruction to isolated mariners stationed there, and that there was neither a lighthouse for warning nor lifeboats for rescue in the event of perilous shipwrecks. The first and last deficiencies I was confident I could by myself and my friends at home supply, but the second, the lighthouse, I could only hope to see established through your Excellency's influence, met and sustained by the gubernatorial authority of Sir Gaspard Le Marchand. The opinions of civilians differ, but as they suffer none of the exposures and encounter none of the dangers of maritime life, I presume they will concede the decision to those who unite prudence with courage, and who, while they unshrinkingly meet perils, do not despise aids for avoiding destruction. I shall regard elaborate argument unseasonable in presenting this subject to your Excellency for cordial support, and in the confidence which your reputation for humanity and energy inspire, leave this work in your hands for early accomplishment. I may inform you that a library of several hundred volumes, the joint gift of some of my friends and several liberal booksellers in Boston, has already been forwarded to Halifax to constitute a mariner's library for Sable Island. In view of supplying lifeboats to meet a necessity, in a spirit of neighborly good will and fraternal kindness, I asked of a few of my mercantile friends in the cities of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia a sufficient subscription for four first-class lifeboats, a life car with mortar, cables, trucks, harnesses, etc. I have named the Philadelphia boat the Grace Darling, the New York boats severally, the Reliance, and the Samaritan, the car, the rescue, and the Boston boat, the Victoria of Boston. I shall be gratified if you will do me the honor of inspecting them. I already have seen them conquer the breakers in a stormy sea. I have, Your Excellency, the honor to be with sincere respect and high appreciation, Your Excellency's friend, D. L. Dix. End quote. Alas, the warning of Captain R. B. Forbes in regard to too many eggs in one basket was destined to prove prophetic. For a long time nothing was heard of the brig Eleonora 
till at last came a letter to Miss Dix from her stanch friend in hospital work, Honorable Hugh Bell, which brought sad tidings. Quote, Halifax, January 16, 1854. Dear Madam, Perhaps before this reaches you, though newspapers or the shippers will have informed you of the fate of the lifeboats, the brig Eleonora, on board which they were shipped, was driven ashore in the tempestuous weather we have lately had at a place called Cranberry Head, about nine miles from Yarmouth, and is a total wreck. I telegraphed to Yarmouth to ascertain respecting the boats. The reply is, one totally lost, went to sea, one badly broken, other in hold, uncertain, buoys, etc., I believe saved. Thus your benevolent intentions and those of your generous friends are for the present frustrated. End quote. The disappointment was a sad one to mystics, who constitutionally liked to see everything doing its own appointed work, and did not at all enjoy the reversed situation of a life-saving outfit that needed to be saved itself. However, she at once gave directions to have the two broken boats, as well as the one that had gone to sea and was later picked up, together with all the accoutrements sent back to New York for thorough repair. At the same time, issuing orders that the Victoria should remain in Halifax till the whole little fleet should be ready. Long delays in receiving and reshipping ensued, so that it was not until the ensuing October that, in two detachments, the entire outfit was landed on Sable Island. Now, in a romantic drama to be entitled The Grace Darling, and sensationally worked up to thrill the spectators and emphasize the sure reward of virtue, the writer would no doubt extemporize a shipwreck to glorify, within twenty-four hours of its advent, so humanely sent a means of rescue, and to give it a chance to make immediate display of its heroic quality. Not always, however, is poetic justice confined to the stage. Strange to relate, in the night of October 27th, within a few days only after the arrival of the first three boats, and a day only after that of the Reliance, which proved the real hero of the scene, a shipwreck, and a frightful one, did occur. It was that of the ship Arcadia, Captain William Jordan, from Antwerp, for New York, with 147 passengers on board and a crew of 21 men. The first tidings of the behavior of the little fleet were sent mystics, then, as has already been seen, in England, by Honorable Hubel of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Quote, Dear Madame, the very day after the arrival of the largest lifeboat, the Reliance, at Sable Island, the others having been, together with the attached cars and wagons, previously forwarded, a large American ship from Antwerp, 
with upwards of 160 passengers, men, women, and children, was cast upon one of the sandbanks off the northeast end of the island and lurched so that the sea beat into her and rendered all chance of escape by the efforts of the people on board quite hopeless. The sea was so heavy and the weather so boisterous that none of the island's boats could live in it. To reach the wreck from the station was over twenty miles. Your wagons thus came into use. Your reliance rode over the waves, as the sailor said, like a duck, and with her and two of your smaller boats, the Samaritan and the Rescue, the whole of the passengers were safely landed. Poor things, almost in a state of nudity, not being able to save anything from the ship. Will you not rejoice at this result of your bounty? Including the crew, 180 human beings were saved by the means thus opportunely, and may I not add providentially, furnished through your care. I am very truly your friend and obedient servant, Hugh Bell. End quote. This letter from Honorable Hugh Bell was, a few weeks later, followed by a letter to himself from Captain M. D. McKenna, superintendent of the relief station at Sable Island, which gives farther particulars. Quote, Sable Island, December 6, 1854. Dear Sir, the Arcadia struck on the southeast side of the northeast bar of this island at 6 p.m. on the 26th instant mens in a dense fog and the wind blowing strong from south-southwest. As soon as we got the report on the following morning, we started at once for the wreck with the largest lifeboat and found the ship lying about 200 yards from the beach, head to the southward, settled deep in the sand, and listed seaward with her lee side under water, main and mizzen masts gone by the deck, and a tremendous sea running and sweeping over her bows. We immediately launched the Francis lifeboat Reliance, when the boat's crew took their stations, and with the mate started for the wreck, and after contending for some considerable time with tremendous seas, strong currents, and high winds, they got alongside the wreck, and during the afternoon made six trips to the wreck, and brought on shore about eighty persons, large and small. Two other attempts were made to reach the wreck, but the oars and thole pins were broken by the violence of the sea and the boat had to return to the beach. An attempt was made to send a warp from the ship to the shore, but the current ran at such a rate that it could not be accomplished. When night came on, and we had to haul up our boat, the cries from those left on the wreck were truly heartrending. In the hurry of work, families had been separated, and when those on shore heard the cries of those on the wreck at seeing the boats hauled up, a scene was witnessed that may be imagined but cannot be described. I walked slowly from the place, leading my horse, 
till by the roaring of the sea, the whistling of the winds, and the distance I had traveled, their doleful cries could not be heard. Next morning, we launched the lifeboat as soon as it was clear enough to see how to work her, and by 10 a.m. we had both crew and passengers safely landed. The ship was broken in a thousand pieces on the night of the 29th, and only a few packages of cargo and some small things of ship's materials are saved. Captain Jordan was knocked down by a sea and very severely cut and bruised while our boat was making her second trip, which deprived us of his advice and assistance. The mate, Mr. Collimore, acted nobly throughout the whole business. The island men exerted themselves to the utmost, and the boat's crew nobly stuck to their boat, and declined accepting the offer of the mate to give them a spell with some of the ship's crew. The Francis Metallic Lifeboat Reliance has done what no other boat could do that I have ever seen. It was a fearful time, yet the boat's crews each took their stations readily and soon showed that they felt the Reliance to be worthy of her name. I am sure that our benevolent friend, Miss Dix, will feel herself more than compensated for her great exertions in behalf of Sable Island Establishment when she becomes acquainted with what we have already done through the means she furnished, and we, with many others, have reason to thank God that her good works have been felt on Sable Island. For my own part, I shall think of her with feelings of gratitude while memory lasts. Your obedient servant, M. D. McKenna. To the Honorable Hugh Bell, Chairman, Board of Works, Halifax. End quote. Congratulatory letters from home friends and friends in England now came thick and fast to Miss Dix, among which one has been preserved which gives so sprightly and amusing a picture of international rivalry in acts of mercy as to make it quite as worthy of record as the majority of the public reports of international rivalries in yacht racing or even in pugilistic prowess the letter was written by miss anna gurney of the well-known quaker family illustrated in the annals of philanthropy by such names as those of Elizabeth Fry, John Joseph Gurney, and Sir Fowell Buxton. To bring out its point, a few words in relation to Miss Gurney are necessary. Miss Anna Gurney, says the Gentleman's Magazine, in an obituary of her, written several years later, was a lifelong invalid. Quote, At ten months old, she was attacked with a paralytic affection, which deprived her forever of the use of her lower limbs. She passed through her busy, active, and happy life without ever having been able to stand or move. As her appetite for knowledge displayed itself at an early age, her parents procured for her the instruction of a tutor whose only complaint was that he could not keep pace with her eager desire and rapid acquisitions. 
she thus learned successively latin greek and hebrew after which she took herself to the teutonic languages her proficiency in which was soon marked by translation of the anglo-saxon chronicle printed in eighteen nineteen after the one irreparable loss to her of the sister of sir fowell buxton in eighteen thirty nine she continued to inhabit her beautiful cottage of northreps near comer finding consolation and happiness in a ceaseless round of beneficence she had procured at her own expense one of captain manby's apparatus for saving the lives of seamen on that most dangerous coast and in case of great emergency and peril she caused herself to be carried down to the beach and from the chair in which she wheeled herself directed all measures for rescue we cannot conceive a more touching and elevating picture than that of the infirm woman dependent even for the least movement on artificial help coming from the luxurious comfort of her lovely cottage to face the fury of the storm that she might hope to save some from perishing surely then if ever a brave-hearted woman was entitled to her fair share of men women and children snatched from the maw of the devouring sea miss anna gurney was that woman and now there had suddenly loomed up a rival american sister who had secured one hundred and eighty at a single haul of the net the virulence of miss gurney's envious feelings will be readily perceived from the following letter Quote, my dear miss dix i congratulate you intensely i have never heard of such a success and to have it exactly the day after your boats arrived i can only tell you i have been on the lookout these thirty years and tolerably sharp too i hope and never got so much as a pussy-cat to my own share of a wreck, though I have had plenty to do with crews and dogs and cats, too. But I never had really the joy of being the instrument of deliverance, as you may truly feel yourself. Once, indeed, my servant threw a rocket-line over a stranded vessel, and my gang of fishermen were very indignant that the men would not give me the honor and glory of letting themselves be dragged through the breakers upon the sand, but would wait to come ashore comfortably in a lifeboat, which just then came in sight. So, in fact, I have had no luck at all, though, as I say, I have been gaping for it like an oyster these five and thirty years." Immediately on receipt of the news of the rescue of the passengers and crew of the Arcadia, Miss Dix acted with her usual thoughtfulness in calling the attention of the Mariner's Royal Benevolent Society to the gallant conduct of Captain McKenna and his men, and in procuring for them, by unanimous vote, the gold medal of the Corporation for the Chief and the silver medal for each of those serving under him. The vote of the Royal Benevolent Society bears date August 8, 
1855, though it was not until October 1st that Miss Dix received and forwarded to Sable Island from Vevey in Switzerland the medals. They were accompanied by a letter full of the admiration of a heroic woman for brave and self-sacrificing men. Quote, Vevey, Switzerland, October 1st, 1855. To Captain McKenna, Sable Island. Sir, I have the great satisfaction of communicating to you and the brave men under your command at Sable Island a copy of the documents which I have this week received from the secretary of the Mariner's Royal Benevolent Society, London, to whom I communicated the facts of your unhesitating performance of the sacred duty resting upon you in giving succor to all ships and persons in distress by reasons of peril through storm and wreck upon the dangerous bars of Sable Island. No rewards can measure with such services, and no wages recompense them. Life is hazarded to save life, and selfish considerations are absorbed in exertions to rescue those whose sole human dependence rests on your heroism and effective action. Yet, I believe you will highly value the bestowal of the gold and silver medals of the Royal Benevolent Society, unanimously awarded, affording, as it does, evidence that your services in a lonely and desolate island are honorably estimated and gratefully recorded. I beg you will convey to the seamen serving under you the expression of my confidence in the continued discharge of their duty, and my prayer that, as you and they, in the hour which tries men's souls, have given help to the helpless, so you all in your time of need, when more than human strength is wanted, may find that succor which shall guide your lifeboat safely into the haven of salvation and land you with joy upon the shores of eternal life your friend d l dix neither captain william jordan nor first mate dexter collimore were british subjects and so could not come in for their share in the distribution of medals but as the first of these had stood bravely by his ship and passengers till disabled by the blow of a wave, and the second, on taking command, had proved himself thoroughly self-possessed, Miss Dix constituted herself a royal benevolent society in their behalf, sending to each a token of her personal esteem and receiving from each a grateful and sailor-like reply. Near the same date came also a letter from the mother of one of the shipwrecked crew, which gives a glimpse of what must have been the spirit of thanksgiving in many a scattered household. Quote, Castine, Maine, March 6th, 1855. My friend and benefactress, Miss Dix. You will not be surprised at this address when I tell you that my son was one of the crew of the ship Arcadia, saved through your instrumentality. 
while our hearts ascend, I trust to our heavenly preserver, with grateful emotions, it is fitting that we should express to you our thanks and kind regards, with the hope that your benevolent efforts for elevating character and saving life may be crowned with success, and that the blessing of many ready to perish may come upon you. Affectionately, Lucy S. Adams. End quote. As usual with Miss Dix, this happy result of her efforts in behalf of Sable Island seems to have acted simply as an incentive to farther activity. Indeed, the same held true of the spirit of the gallant little fleet, which again and again distinguished itself. While throughout the remainder of her own life, she kept up an unfailing interest in the life-saving stations all along the coasts of the United States, supplying them with libraries and keeping herself ever on the alert to learn and communicate anything new bearing on their fullest equipment for their work. It is, therefore, perfectly characteristic of her to find, within a few days of the receipt in England of the glad tidings, an entry in her journal which reads, quote, I have been trying lifeboats and visiting shipyards, listening to lectures on the variations of the compass, also much interested in a project for supporting lighthouses in loose soils by screws that work down deep into the sands. Indeed, few persons ever endorsed more heartily than she the Cromwellian maxim, Fear God and keep your powder dry. Impregnable was her reliance on God, but never on a God who was not jealous of the glory of his own laws, or who would ever consent to bestow the crown of victory on saints presumptuous enough to serve the artillery of heaven with damp gunpowder. It was, then, only a piece of poetic justice in consonance with Miss Dix's inflexible law of life, that in the terrible gale at Sable Island it should have been the reliance that rode the waves like a duck and proved herself queen of the fleet. End of chapter 20